I'm proposing that the city of Spokane Valley issue a proclamation stating that our city is a Second Amendment sanctuary city. Welcome to the fire. Welcome to the fire. Today on Church and State, we'll be joined by Today Michael Morsi. I messed it up again, I think. Hello, Christian Patriots, and welcome to Church and State, where we strive to plug you into the pew and plug you into politics. I'm your host, Caleb Collier. With me, as always, Pastor Gabe Blomgren, once again, your favorite far-right shock jocks and the most schizophrenic show you listen to on a daily basis. The only podcast brave enough to hit the tough issues like faith and politics with Jesus smack dab right in the middle. I love it. All right. Maurice. We- we'll see. Maurice. Or Maurice. Like, what did you say? I don't know. I forgot. My, my bet is Michael Maurice. Okay, we'll, we'll bring him on in just a second here, and he corrected us. Uh, real quick, though, go on over to churchestate.media and download the show. Share them everywhere. We need more and more people viewing our content because, as we always say on here, there's far too few people that are actually discussing the topics that matter the most, and that would be Christ Jesus and what the globalists are trying to do to usher in the Antichrist reign. So we're going to fight both, or we're going to fight for one, and we're going to fight against the other one. So share these everywhere. Take advantage of all of our fine affiliates. We're working on a couple new ones as well. But uh, we did just get Grid Down Chowdown. I love Grid Down Chowdown, don't you? We just got a. I just so- love the fact that it's the only survival food. You know, it's it's a lot of people think, oh, you want it pre cooked. You actually don't, because when you thaw this, you can make whatever you want. You know, you said you're Italian. I, I can't imagine your mom would make a mean lasagna, correct? Uh, I don't even understand the term meatless. Yes. Maybe so. Chris could jump on here as the resident vegetarian and, and tell us what that word even means. It's offensive. It is offensive. I'm triggered. So if you like beef as much as I do and hate the New World policy of uh, eat the bugs and be happy, then order some of this stuff. It's got a 10 to 15-year shelf life. You're never going to be without beef. And a life without beef, is that even worth living? I don't think so. Use that promo code Church and State. Also, if you want to just donate to us directly, hit that donate button and uh, help us remain on the American Christian Network. We are still continuing to raise funds to do so. And last but not least, if you want to get a hold of us, Church and State, 1776 at proton.me. All right, I've got an incredible guest here uh, with quite the story to tell. Um, And I, I can't wait to talk with him because his book has actually challenged me and some of my preconceived notions as far as uh, law enforcement. Um, and so I'm, I'm very excited to bring on Michael Maurice. Am I saying that right, sir? I am. Okay. Yes, sir. Me you that sure nod. did. That was perfect. All right. Uh, Vice President of Church Ambassador yeah. Network. Mike has a 30-year career in the corporate world and has been a full-time minister since 2015. Uh, he's been ordained as a pastor, director of National Campus Ministry, and working in development and leadership for several ministries. Uh, quite the resume. And uh, quite the story to tell. So with that, thank you so much for joining us on Church and State, sir. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. And I'm with you guys. Meatless lasagna. My mother would not be happy if I tried something like that. <laughs> That's right. You got it. You got to have the meat in there. I, I, I don't understand this whole vegetarian thing. Yes. We, we tease our producer nah. because he's a vegetarian. Nah. Well, he's probably healthier than us, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but he's much sadder. <laughs> yes, All <right>. exactly. <laughs> All right, so you you recently got a hold of us um, on Church and State, and you actually sent us uh, your book. And I've been just reading that every single night. It's such a compelling story. 
what what I want to share with the audience is, regardless of if it's media or Hollywood or an author, if they can elicit an emotional response from me, I consider that to be a good work. And your book, and I and I told you this in my email, your book has made me angry. The, the injustice that you suffered at the hands of our so-called Department of Justice uh, was so horrific. Um, and I really want our audience to hear exactly what happened to you, sir. So with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Well, thank you. And, uh, and uh, fortunately for me, thousands of people have read it, and the response is typically the same, uh, especially in the first five or six chapters or so uh, before we get into what really actually happened, where I was. Um, the story is, 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 is um, very concerning, and it's concerning because the federal government can decide to target, and we've seen it, they can decide to target anybody. And if and the way the laws are written, they can do pretty much anything they want. And, and in my particular case, um, you know, an, an airline that I had started uh, that ended up uh, because of an accident, a freak accident between a truck and an aircraft on an air, on the ramp, uh, we shut down. Uh, I left the company, went to work uh, in ministry. Uh, but I got, a, I got an email from our in-house counsel and he asked me to send an email to the non-secured creditors of the organization to let them know we would not have the money to pay them, uh, which was disappointing, but it was just a fact. And um, so I did, I sent five emails. Well, the federal government determined that since there was money in the bank, even though it would have been illegal for us to give any of that money to them, it would have been a violation of the bankruptcy laws. Um, by telling them we didn't have any money, that, commit, that was considered fraud, uh, which is ludicrous. Um, you know, it's it's something that can only be born in the mind of a federal prosecutor who has targeted someone in a high profile case because this the closure of the airline and the, the profile of this particular case was very big. Um, and then on top of those five uh, fraud charges, they call then they add five counts of money laundering and five counts of using the funds obtained through illegal services. So every attorney that I spoke to when I first got indicted said, this is the biggest stretch of the, of the law that they've ever seen. And um, uh, they said that there was, this case could be won on pretrial motions if it was heard anywhere other than in a federal courtroom. And they all told me that because of the prosecutor that was handling it, that I should probably wait for his plea and then take whatever he offered, which was just contrary to me. I was not in the, in the least willing to plea at that point anyway, um, because I hadn't done anything and I wasn't about to admit to something that I had not done. So... They did. You know, they they I, I ended up with a federal public defender because every attorney that I talked to wanted two hundred thousand dollars. And um, in the process of going through it after the literally a few days after I was uh, indicted, uh, they offered me a plea. If I would just plead guilty to one charge, they would see to it that I didn't go to prison. And that if I did not, they made it clear that I would spend 10 years in prison for a crime that never even happened. And these were her words, the public defender's words. So what are you going to do when you're faced with that? I mean, I fought it as long as I could. Um, they made it really clear to me that uh, he controlled the jury. 
that he would destroy my credibility uh, in any way that he could, whether it was truthful or not, accusations or not. Uh, and then by the time I hit the stand on the fourth or fifth day of the trial, the jury wouldn't believe a word I had to say. And then she showed me cases, case after case, where the same exact thing had happened. So I pled the case. I, I pled guilty to a charge that I didn't commit. Um, and then when we got to sentencing, um, he, he lied. I mean, he stood in the courtroom and, and told this judge that I had moved money out of an account that wasn't opened until after I left the company and I'd never signed on. Um, and as I spoke to my public defender sitting beside me and I said, you know, he's lying. You have to say something about this. Why aren't you objecting to this? She said, well, we can't because you pled. And if you say anything, this judge will send you to prison today for five years just for calling him a liar, even if he's actually lying. You know, guys, at one point I found a, there was in the discovery, there was a signature card from the bank for this particular account that they had opened after I left and it had my name typed on it. And when I took it to the bank, the banker looked at it and said, I'm not going to be able to talk with you anymore about this because I don't know where he got that signature card from, but he didn't get it from us because we have nothing relating to this account with your name on it. And so I thought, I've got him now. This is evidence that a prosecutor fabricated evidence, hid exculpatory evidence. Uh, and when I presented this to her, her exact words to me were, Mike, you don't understand this case was never about guilt or innocence. And it was never about justice. You were targeted. And if you play the game, you'll go home to your family. And if you don't, you'll spend 10 years in prison. And the court will do everything in their power to protect him, even if even if you present this evidence that he did something or someone in his office did something wrong. And I'm going to pause you there because um, there's a few things that I want my audience to understand. Um, number one, when you wrote that email to uh, – there were five emails to, to the individuals telling them that you wouldn't be able or your company would not be able to actually repay them. It was because even though you had money in the account, that had been allocated to the secured debts. And so the unsecured right. debts were not allowed, were not able to be paid. Uh, actually, it was illegal for those to be paid. And so you were paying the secured debts, and and but they they still they went after you over that reason. Uh, the other thing that I want my audience to know, and, and perhaps you can speak a little bit more about this, is this company. You were never on any of the paperwork with access to the banking account. You didn't sign the checks. You had nothing to do with that as well as the airline had actually secured you a loan and you had nothing to do with this as well. Um, and the only two people, even though there were some very high up individuals, but the only two people that were actually charged were yourself and the, I believe is the airport director. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. So no, I had never signed on that account. I had never signed any checks. Um, I was the founder and the president of the company when it started. I hired a CEO because we were getting ready to go public and we needed somebody who had a lot more, uh, you know, senior level experience that Wall Street would be interested in. Uh, he handled everything that had to do with that loan. The loan was, you know, guaranteed by state funds. Um, and that's why the state was so adamant about um, doing something about this. But the state in 2017 did a full investigation. And the guy actually came to my office and shook hands with me and said, I got to tell you, man, he said, everything you told us was the truth and every dime was accounted for. You did everything right and you guys are no longer a target. It was nearly two years later that the feds indicted me. And the crazy thing about it is, the city manager, the vice president of the bank that issued the loan, and the attorney 
for the airport um, all lost their jobs over this loan. And I don't really know what all the details were that went on behind the scenes of it because I kind of stayed out of it when it was in its, in its formation. But the, the airport, uh, the airport uh, lawyer and the bank ended up paying the state back the $4.5 million that we defaulted on. So that's, you know, it's, it appears as though people who may have done some things wrong that we're not even aware of actually bought their way out of getting into trouble. And then the, the feds picked the case up and said, well, let's go after the, let's go after the airport director and the high profile president of the company or former president of the company. And they waited five or six years to do it. You know, it just, no part of it makes any sense to me. As, as I was reading the book, I, I, I tended to look at the airport director as, as the fall guy. And honestly, as, as I'm looking at, at you in this story, um, I, I see a, a targeted attack against a Christian. Now, now that I may be extrapolating that, and that may not be true, but in the, in the story, you had just come back from ministry in China, uh, where I, I can imagine, uh, Gabe, you'll love this part. I mean, he's out there, he's ministering to the Chinese underground churches, you know, uh, comes back, just his cup is filled, it's, it's overflowing. And then the very next week, he gets hit with this letter telling him that he's getting charged for this crime that he didn't commit. Wow. Uh, Usually, yeah. Book of Job stories, you know, it, it's very interesting that when we are being tested, we don't we don't know the end outcome, we don't know what right. we're going through. But coming out of communist China, I'm sure you saw a lot of like having to scurry as Christians because it's such a a totalitarian system that is designed to entrap Christians. Did you feel as if? Uh, you felt some commonality between your brothers and sisters in China? Well, to an extent, and I do believe that there was, um, there was some motivation because I had become a fairly high profile in the area as being a man of God. We had a ministry that served the homeless in Norfolk on a regular basis. I was preaching at churches all over the area. Um, I was working for the Congressional Prayer Caucus Foundation on a national level, opening, you know, establishing prayer caucuses in the in the in the uh, state houses of states all over the country. Uh, it's an organization that was run, established by Congressman Randy Forbes. Um, so there was a lot of profile. There was a high profile there. I think. I think, uh, and, and you're right. I mean, in China, you have to be so careful and so quiet. I literally walked down the street one day with a Bible in my hand and a local guy who was an American there teaching Chinese, he said, put that away, put that away. He said, they will literally arrest you off the street for carrying that down the street. And the, 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 the effort that had to be put into hiding the church service that we preached at was amazing to see that the, what they had to go through in order to be able to do it. So yeah, you come back and you just say, wait a minute, why are they attacking me? And it's interesting because I got a call from an attorney just a few weeks ago, used to be in AUSA, is now a defense attorney and she helps people like this. And she said, I gotta tell you, she said in all my career, um, I, I now see a couple of cases for the first time where the people did absolutely nothing wrong and got prosecuted and shouldn't have. And I just am like, if, you know, if I had done something wrong, I, you know, I would have fallen on my sword, but we did, we didn't do anything wrong. We, we handled, we thought we handled everything right. And a four and a half month long state investigation determined the same thing, but the feds decide that they're going to go after you. They're going to go after you. And, and, you know, the process 
for these AUSAs in order to get promoted is, you know, high profile cases and you got to win them. And they win through intimidation and threats. They do not win based on any kind of, you know, I mean, look, there are some people out there that are guilty of crimes, but I think there are even in a white collar arena, even people who are guilty of a small crime and they blow it up just like they took five emails and turned it into 15 felonies where you're facing 40 years in prison because they know now we can intimidate you into, uh, into pleading the case. This particular prosecutor, 98.7% of his cases plead out. Wow. That's not because he's that good. It's really not. Not yeah. when, on average, in the country, it's a sixty-six percent plea. Yeah, right. that, it's because he's good at intimidation, and I think the the book right. proves that without a shadow of a doubt. One of the things that, as I was reading this, that that really actually kind of challenged me is, uh, you know, I, I consider myself more on the the libertarian vein as far as my political ideology goes, and um, I've I've always been a little bit suspicious of, of the the prison system, um, but yet. Because we're constantly inundated with these stories of these criminals that are that are getting away, that are getting released again and again to commit more crimes, it starts to bleed over, and you start to start to almost celebrate, like, yeah, law and order. Let's let's put some more people in prison. And reading your book reminded me a little bit more of my roots. And I was considering this as I as I put your book down, and I was getting ready to go to sleep. Uh, the the old phrase of, of better for. 10 guilty men to go free than for one innocent man to languish in prison. And, and I really think that we need to re-examine our current system. You, you had some incredible data on uh, the America, I believe it was what, what we make up like 4% of the, the world's population, and yet 25% of our, of our population gets imprisoned. Is, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. And another super sad, really sad thing that it would give you an idea of the way they've structured the system. I spent eight months in prison. I have three years of probation. Now, a probation violation, which could be a speeding ticket, could land me in prison for three more years. 71% of people who come out of the federal system end up back in prison within two years. And so you have to ask yourself, what's the motivation here? Because there is nothing about the federal prison system or the release into a halfway house that speaks to rest, you know, to rehabilitation. No part of it. There's no rehabilitation going on. It's almost as if their mission is let's make it so difficult to for them to uh, exist on the on the street that they do screw up so that we can get them back in here again. And, yeah. But what's the motivation? Where's the money coming? It's, you, I always think whenever I think about anything that's corrupt, you got to follow the money and that'll tell you what's going on. And I just think that there is the system is so broken that I think most people is what I the, the caveat that I put at the beginning of my book. Some people are going to read this thing and say, come on, this cannot be true because they don't want to believe for a second that we have a federal government that is that, that is this uh, broken especially a justice system. Based on what you've seen, I know this is kind of going out and uh, jumping subjects, but we know federal judges are bought and paid for in a, in a lot of jurisdictions. It, it, is it now really not that far-fetched to say, hey, it'd be easy to, to, to scheme over an election system easily when you have the federal ju- judicial system behind you? It, I know that's it's reaching – but you saw it firsthand. Is, is it now kind of eye-opening that how much control has been condensed on a federal level? 
Yes. Yes. I don't think it's far reaching what you just said at all. I think I would have, you know, I mean, five years ago, I would have been like, come on, you know, a lot of this stuff seems like conspiracy theory to me. But today, no matter what I see, I'm, I'm a little bit more in tune with saying, yeah, that makes sense to me. I'll give you an example. People uh, uh, um, are going crazy over this whole gag order uh, that Trump uh, was put on President Trump. They did the same thing to me. The day that I was indicted, they released me uh, to wait for trial. But the judge told, said to me, if you post anything on social media, if you speak to anyone other than an attorney that has been registered with this court about this case, if you do any media interviews at all, I'll lock you up. So in other words, he, he gagged me, he told me I wasn't allowed to speak. And then the the press releases that came out day after day after day by the feds were filled with lies. They made allegations and accusations of, of charges that didn't exist. They pretend they actually wrote in there that the airport and I director and I conspired to take this money. I mean, they just, they paint this picture of you because they want to make sure that when a jury sits down, they already are angry at you because you took state funds and you used them for your own benefit, which was the farthest from the truth. I worked for over a year in that company without a dime of pay. So uh, nothing surprises me about what's going on with these federal judges. The federal judge that I had, um, had, had was a federal public defender um, and but was the state director of the Obama campaign. So when he won the presidency, within a matter of months, she was appointed to the bench. And with a few months after that, the the same-sex marriage amendment to the Constitution came out, or the, not the amendment, but the Supreme Court thing. And she was the one who was requested to make a determination as to whether or not Virginia should adhere to that and comply with it. So you kind of look at that picture and say, that wasn't planned. That wasn't choreographed. I mean, there's some things you just, if you open your eyes and look at what's going on in our government today, especially with regard to the justice system, the Department of Justice, you have to open your eyes and say, come on, this doesn't make sense. To, whether I knew anything about this and had ever experienced it at all, I would be looking at this as an intelligent man and saying, something's wrong here. Something's this just doesn't fit. Hey, it is. Second, now, there's probably thousands of AUSAs out there that do a great job and they do it with integrity and character and they put people away that need to go away. But there are some power hungry guys that have decided I'm going to do whatever I have to do. And if that means uh, putting an innocent person in prison and it, better, and it moves my career up the ladder, then I can sleep at night. That's sad. Looking back on it now, Michael, for those of uh, the audience who are listening, I, I have the sneaking suspicion that somebody either in the audience or us I'll just be honest, could end up in jail. Okay, being 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 like Jesus means if they, they hated him, they're gonna hate you. Mm -hmm. Right. Looking back on it, would would you say to us, still continue to take the plea or would you say fight? Because it's kind of like you know I you know what would you do differently? That's a question that I have gone back and forth on a lot, as you can probably imagine, um, because the number of people I'll tell you, when I first got indicted, the Lord spoke to me and said, a lot of people are going to turn their backs on you. I want you to let them go. He said, I, I'm taking them out of your life and I'll bring people that you that will surprise you, that will be big supporters. And the people that wrote to me literally every single week in prison were people I would have never expected. Mm -hmm. The people that turned my back, their backs on me said, by, by and far, as I've been out now for a couple of years, no one pleads guilty to something they didn't do. 
that is a really naive viewpoint because that is not true. Um, if I had been, if I did not have a 12 and a 15 year old at the time, I probably would have pled, fought the case. Even though every attorney I talked to said, you're crazy. Don't fight this case. That every attorney that reviewed the case said, you did nothing wrong here, but do not fight this case. Not with this prosecutor. Because they told me that this, this prosecutor, they told me, he'll lie and he'll manipulate and the judge will not let you point that out. So you will, if you point out that he's lying about something in front of the jury, the judge will admonish you for it. And so what do you do in a case like that? I mean, I've never felt, I'm a pretty tough dude. I've never felt helpless in my life, but I felt helpless in this particular situation and was just at a point where I was like, I'm not, I'm not risking going away for five to 10 years for something like this and, and not being able to see my kids grow up. Yeah, that one of the uh, very compelling elements of the the book uh, so far, I'm I'm only into chapter eight, I believe, um, is is your relationship with your wife. You talk about that and how you guys had never been separated. You always you were in communication. Uh, your family, your your boys, and and your boys, even even as they started to understand that that dad was going away, they viewed it as a deployment. Uh, that, that dad was going away and he was going to be doing something great. It, it, it did not, what, what the enemy intended to, to really separate your family did not do that at all. Uh, your wife stood no. by your side. Your children were excited to see what the Lord had in store for you. And uh, we're, we're quickly running out of time. I mean, I, um, I hate to do it. Can you stay on for another half hour? Can you do a second show with us? Of course. Okay, good. Because sure, there's be so much more that I'd like to talk about here. Are you, you okay with that? Absolutely. All right. Yeah. So um, let, let discuss that very quickly. And then I want to make sure the audience has a chance to, to purchase the book. But go ahead and just talk a little bit about the fa- family element. Well, you're right. I mean, I'm really blessed. I have a, a, an amazing wife. And uh, my boys are, are have been just we've raised them with the Lord and they are, uh, they, they're great young disciples and they saw it as a mission trip. I mean, it hurt them. They, they, they had a lot, there was a lot of pain and I'll tell you some, some things, some more other things that both the prosecutor and the federal and the Bureau of prisons did to make that even tougher. When you get to the end of the book, they all wrote a chapter in the book or a couple of paragraphs in the book. Uh, and you'll get a really a real insight into their hearts. But um, it meant a lot to me. And the things that God did right before I left, I sold real estate. And the crazy thing is, literally a week before I left, I sold three houses, generating just an incredible amount of a big, you know, it's almost two and a half million dollars worth of property. Um, and I think it was just Jesus saying, listen, I want you to know financially, I'm taking care of your family while you're gone so that you can just focus on what I have for you in here. Um, I didn't like being in there, but I came to a point where I, I looked forward to getting up every day because I couldn't wait to see what God was going to do that day. And man, what he did was amazing. I mean, this is, I don't ever like to align myself with anybody in the Bible, but this is a Joseph story. What God did for me there. I, I tell people when I preach, I tell people I spent eight months in federal prison and I wouldn't pass it up for anything. <laughs> wow. That's pretty I'm wild. I'm excited to have part two. This yeah. Is yeah. So as, as we come back, we'll start discussing uh, your time in prison here, but real quickly, how do people get the book? It's available anywhere you buy books. It's on, it's an Amazon listed as an Amazon bestseller. It's, it's called, it was never about justice. Um, you can pick it up on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, any place that you can buy books online. Excellent. Well, Facebook list or excuse me, ACN listeners, please. Those of you go, go right now to rumble.com church and state. 1776 is how you hear our second part of the interview. Same, same thing. Facebook 
We're there, Church and State, 1776. All right, yeah, we'll be back with part two. Part two of It Was Never About Justice with Michael Morrissey. Hello, Christian Patriots, and welcome to Church and State, where we strive to plug you into the pew and plug you into politics. I'm your host, Caleb Collier. With me, as always, Pastor Gabe Blomgren. Once again, your favorite far-right shock jocks and the most schizophrenic show you listen to on a daily basis. The only show brave enough to hit faith and politics in the same room and then have Jesus smack dab in the middle. Amen. Well, I'm excited to bring on our guest for part two, so I'm not going to belabor the website too much. Uh, but look, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't seen uh, part one, you got to download it and you got to share it with some people because this is an incredible story about our uh, lack of justice system, uh, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no hiccup the, there. I'm excited also here. Uh, one of our favorite stories as a family is the story of Joseph, especially the fact that he's raised up from Potiphar's home then gets tore down, sent to jail, then he gets raised up in the jail system, actually. If you can if you can actually get promoted in the jail system, I, I gotta admit, one of my favorite movies is the Shawshank Redemption. It's a great movie. It's you one got, of my favorite. You gotta watch it every movies. time it's on. So I'm 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 envisioning this whole story with Michael and the whole like situation. So Absolutely. I'm excited for part two, hearing his side of what God was doing. He was incarcerated for eight months, not a short stint. No. And uh also take advantage of all of our fine affiliates. Let's see, who am I going to plug? Let's let's plug gold and silver, Gabe, because, um, look, I think all of us understand that something is coming at us. We don't exactly know what. Uh, we don't engage in this platform and in uh, wild prophecies that, uh, you know, on, on March 2nd of 2024, the economy is going to collapse. We don't do that kind of stuff here, okay? But we do know something's happening. There's There are problems in the economy, and the best way to ensure that you're going to safeguard yourself and your family is to have some precious metals on hand. And there's no one better than Beverly Hills Precious Metals. Use that promo code Church and State. We'll get a little portion of that back. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's not necessarily about what we're getting out of it. We want you to be protected against the coming economic storm. Yeah, absolutely. And then for those of you who are having reservations about, hey, the price is way too extravagant, think about it right now. It's called Beverly Hills Precious Metals Exchange. You're exchanging your cash for a, a, a set of physical objects that hold their value. Your cash is not going to hold its value. And people like Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, is saying things. This is, you know, if Costco's selling it, it's time to start paying attention. Amen to that. Hey, uh, also, you can donate directly to us to uh, ensure that we stay on the American Christian Network. We are raising funds for that. And last but not least, if you want to get a hold of us, Church and State 1776 at proton.me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a treat. Part two uh, with my friend here, Michael, um, and I, I've just been thoroughly enjoying reading this book. Uh, it, kind, it kind of sounds strange to say enjoying reading about a time where a man suffered great injustice and was thrown into the prison system, but it is a fantastic book, and I highly recommend all of you purchase that. We'll, we'll, uh, at the end of the show, we'll once again uh, show you how you can get the book. But Michael, thanks again for joining us on Church and State. Thank you, guys. It's uh, nice to be back. I don't know what happened. Someone just turned out the lights here. <laughs> it looks kind of foreboding and ominous. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. There it's, you go. It's actually um, perfect. It's some Godfather you know, music in yeah. the back. Some Italian <laughs> yeah, Godfather exactly. will play that. Exactly. Uh, so as we left uh, you, we were we were starting to discuss uh, your time in prison, and, and I'll, I'll set the table for the audience. Uh, you've you've now uh, you've been prosecuted. You are now going to go to prison. And uh, you're, you're not sure exactly when you're going because this is at the height of the pandemic. Uh, and they are literally yeah. releasing prisoners to go back and do their, their time at home with an ankle monitor. And so you're, you're getting extensions. 
uh, to where, you know, maybe, maybe you're not going to go, but you're at least getting a 90 day extension before you're, you're sent in. Uh, so walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So just to show you the incestuousness between the federal public defenders and the prosecutors, you know, when this, when I was assigned a federal public defender, she initially uh, met with me on the phone and said, this case is ridiculous. We're going to fight this, you know, um, you know, you shouldn't have been charged. Um, and then when I appeared in court to get the judge to sign off on me using a federal public defender, a different one showed up and she said, I handle the cases for this prosecutor. He and I are best friends. Like that doesn't give me a real good feeling, but that just, yeah, really that takes you to the point where now I'm out of prison. I wrote a letter to the judge uh, telling her after my sentencing that the prosecutor had lied and that the public defender had refused to allow me to say anything to her, threatening me with a longer jail time if I did. Um, they learned of this, and you'll read some of her emails as you get on in the in the thing where she was so upset. But when the attorney general stipulated that no nonviolent criminals with two years or less were supposed to be sent to prison during the pandemic, I just immediately assumed, all right, I've just gotten a reprieve. The Lord has answered prayer. I'm not going. She refused to process that motion to change me to home confinement because she said the prosecutor didn't ask. He asked her not to. He would object to that. And she said, if I if I do it, I can't do it against him. Now, most defense attorneys would say, I don't really care what the prosecutor thinks. I expect him to object, but I'm still going to make a fight because I represent my client. She didn't really represent me. She represented him, in my opinion. But she did get an extension for me. So I'd already had 30 days to self-surrender. Then she got another 60 and then another. So I ended up being uh, set, um, almost seven months before I turned myself in. Um, and yeah, the day that I turned myself in, the, the guy met me at the door, the captain there, and he just said, what are you doing here? Who did you make angry? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I released 78 guys this week. And he said, you shouldn't be here. You won't be here more than two days. So they processed me in. they put me in this, uh, a solitaire cell, uh, you know, because you had to do 14 days or 21 days of, uh, solitaire because of COVID, uh, when you came in. Uh, and I'm, the counselors are coming over every day. They're getting information from me and they're telling me, now you're going home, you're going home. We can't keep you here, you know. Uh, and then nothing. I didn't hear anything for a while. Several weeks went by um, and I was slated to be moved into the camp, uh, which was the minimum security place. And two days before I was slated to go in there, the the pandemic hit that prison really hard. They had hundreds of patients and they turned the camp building into a uh, hospital, essentially. And now they, they kept telling me they didn't know what to do with me. And so they were going to send me home. One of the counselors finally came. And she said, well, your prosecutor and the warden have been talking and he's not going to let you go. And I'm like, well, is that the law should stipulate that I get to go under the CARES Act? You have to let me go. This was an order from the attorney general. She's like, it doesn't work that way here. And they ended up putting me illegally in the medium special housing unit, which is what you would refer to as the whole um, for non-punitive reasons, because they had no other place to put me. They put me in there, mixed me in with a guy who was medium classified so much so that when the lieutenant walked by the next morning, she was shocked and said, this is illegal. We can't have you in here. 
And so there I sat for 62 days. I sat in a solitaire cell under the same restrictions that people were that came in there for for punishment. The guy that I was in with wasn't there for punishment either. He was there quarantined because he had gone out off the property to a doctor. And when you do that, even though they test you for COVID before you leave, they test you for COVID at the doctor's office, they test you when you come back, they still lock you up for 21 days. So I had, I could only talk to my family twice a month for 15 minutes, had no newspapers, no television, no radio, no outside access, painted over windows, never leave this six by nine cell at all. Um, now let's uh, let me let me pause you there because in the beginning, as you're in uh, basically quarantine, uh, and you were assured when you went in that you would be able to call your wife the very day that you entered into the prison, and yet while you were in this quarantine area, which by the way was infested with black mold, uh, seems very healthy uh, during a pandemic that you'd be uh, in a, in an environment with black mold there, but the the counselor kept telling you that you couldn't access your phone. Or you or or a phone because you would have to go and fill out this computer uh, paperwork, and it turns mm-hmm. out that that was an entirely a lie. So you went how many days without talking to your wife as you entered the prison system? Twenty four days, twenty four days, and it was a lie, and it was also something that was choreographed. My assumption is based on what I was told by some people who did confide in me. There, it was choreographed by the prosecutor. He wanted me to be shut down and locked down, and he got what he wanted. That's the power that these guys have. And the, and the, the, the having that level of power is okay if you're really putting away criminals. But if, you're gonna, if you have the ability to abuse that power, then we've overstepped. There's no, there has to be someone who is policing the police, who's watching over what these guys are doing. And like I said in the last show, you know, a 98.7% uh, plea rate where a national average is 66 should be a red flag. It shouldn't be something that gets celebrated. Can you go out on some type of limb? Cause it's just to look at this. Is it the fact that you're in Virginia, which we already know is the home of Langley, the FBI. It's also, you know, we know that the, the actual police system in Virginia, we're looking at, I believe it's Fairfax County right now has a massive like issue of like in the, their very high schools. There's, there's police officers that were covering up a, a sex ring in, in a school. So we know that the whole entire right. police system is infiltrated. We know the federal system is infiltrated. Why is this guy targeting you? Are you? Do you have any idea why? Is it the email that you sent as far as trying to nudge the judge into this guy lied about you? Because is, is he coming? Is he laying the smack down after the fact that that email uh, could put him in some type of detriment? Do you have any idea still to this day? Well, I think, yes, to answer your question, I think the, it's clear. And, and the public defender wrote me an email talking about how how angry he was and how if if the judge, if he had learned of that email, that letter prior to the judge giving, granting me the extension, he would have objected and I would be in prison now. Or he would have seen to it that I went to jail until my prison date came up. So he has that kind of power. And I think it bothered him a lot. Um I'll tell you another thing that bothered him. They brought me in and I'll, ask, I'll just do this quickly, but they brought me in and asked in a meeting and there's maybe 15 or 20 federal agents in this room and attorneys. And they asked me to testify against the airport director. And when I, the answers that I gave them weren't satisfactory to them because I was arguing with them that they shouldn't have prosecuted him because his 
corporate counsel and the bank's counsel all read the state regulations that stipulated that this was a legal use of the money uh, for him to use that those state funds to guarantee our loan. Um, it was only after they found out that he had done it that the state went back in and reworded the law because they knew that it was so ambiguous that it could be done. Um, and when I said that, they told me they were going to bring me in for witness prep the next day. And I said, what is witness prep? And he said, well, we go, so we take about two, three hours. We'll give you all the questions we're going to ask, and then we're going to, we're going to review your answers. And I said, I don't need witness prep. I said, I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to raise my hand to tell the truth. I'm going to tell the truth. So they, they ended the meeting, and they didn't use me. Which, by the way, I'm going so to just step in here, sir, because uh, just just to show the character of who you are for our audience, you and the airport director had had a falling out at that time. You were no longer friends. And so you could have, in an attempt to lessen your charges or, or your time in prison, you could have went along with the system, but you told them, I'm telling the truth. This guy did nothing wrong. That's correct. That's correct. In fact, it was only two weeks ago that I, it, I wrote an affidavit to the same effect for the attorney that's representing him in his appeal now. Because I haven't seen or spoken to him five years, six years. Um, but I, justice is more important to me than, than anything. Absolutely. So let's return to prison because uh, all of this, you know, you are, you are just getting hit as hard as possible. And you certainly had your low moments but God was always on the move, and I love your story. You, you say uh, one of the one of the prisoners that was getting out of quarantine. Uh, I think the second day that you were in, gave you his Bible. Um, you were you were finally moved to a, a cell block where you could you had access to a television, and the first thing you did is turn on TBN, and you played it 24, 24 hours a day. Um, and, and I'd like you to, to, to talk a little bit about that, because even some of the prisoners who initially first hated that you had the television and were playing TBN, uh, one of the guards tried to change it, and they all shouted at him, turn it back on. <laughs> they did. It was really cool to watch what 24 hours a day of preaching did to those guys. And that's some, so there were seven cells who were still in this quarantine. This was prior to be, me being moved to the shoe. And... Uh, it was crazy because then the guys are all, they're all talking, you know, through the walls to me about, about God. And the guy next door asked me if I would find, see if I could get him a Bible. And I had my wife order him a Bible and send it to him. And it was really kind of cool to see it happen. And guards would come by and they would, some of them would stop and stand there and watch it for 15, 20 minutes. I mean, it was cool. There are some pastors on that show that I have written to and sent copies of my book to because they were so impactful in how I was able to keep my focus on Christ during that time. It was really actually kind of cool. Who were some of your favorites? I'm curious. They, they helped get you through it. Well, uh, Robert Morris uh, from Gateway Church is by far like I'll get emotional if I talk about this guy because I love him. I do too. I mean, and there's some other really, you know, there's some good, I mean, Joyce Meyer, um, Christine Kane would come on a lot. I mean, and I love both of them and, and uh, Stephen Furtick would come on and, you know, he always just delivers such a powerful message, but I got to tell you, Robert Morris, you know, you've, you've already read in my book, probably the spot, you know, where I said, I woke up and Jesus was sitting on the edge of the bed and I would literally have these conversations with him. And there were moments and I would just be sitting there quietly reading the book and I would audibly hear him say, put the Bible down and watch this. And Robert Morris would come on. And in one in particular, he did, he comes on and there's a show and it's called, he was doing a sermon called who is Jesus? 
Wow. And bro, I'm going to tell you, it rocked me. I mean, it was, and it was so amazing because I knew God wanted me to watch that. And what it did for me, it set me up for what was, what was to come because the next step, you know, was me getting kicked out of Petersburg and transferred to New Jersey in retaliation for a letter that I wrote to the, to the chief counsel, uh, complaining about the way I was being treated and, and where I was being held in, um, in Petersburg. So you, uh, you, you're in the hole, you get moved to the hole and, and this is where I, I'm, uh, at a disadvantage because I haven't finished the book. Uh, but, uh, that's, that's right where I'm at in the, in the book is that you're in the hole. Uh, you've just been, uh, roomed with, uh, I can't remember. It started with a T was his name. He was in, he was in life. Rich. Yeah. T, okay. Yeah. He was in for life. Uh, and, and it, it sounds like he didn't, shouldn't be in there for life. Uh, but yeah, go ahead and pick up from there and and walk us through because I haven't I haven't read through uh, you getting transferred to Jersey yet either. Yeah, so I uh, I was complaining a lot about my where I was being held, about my inability to talk to my family, about me being held in an environment where people are being punished and having to having to adhere to those same things. No commissary, no, very little access to the phone, no television, no nothing, no freedom at all. You can't ever leave the room. And uh, so I wrote a letter at the suggestion of, the, of a lieutenant there. He actually gave me the name of the chief counsel uh, and his address. So I wrote this letter and I wrote it out and I mailed it to my wife and I asked her to type it up and send it. Well, they read my outgoing mail that particular night because the next day they came and told me I was leaving in three days. I was being transferred to New Jersey because I had dared to file a complaint and that the director of that region wanted me out of the region before the pro the attorney got the letter, because then the attorney could just dismiss it because I was no longer in their region. How ludicrous is that? But when I got off the bus in New Jersey, I was met by an officer who said, if you write a letter like that here, first words out of his mouth, you write a letter like that here, and I promise you, I'll ship you all over the country and you won't talk to your family for a year. Wow. And I said, message received. And, it, you know, they call that uh, diesel therapy. They move you on a bus to, to a holding spot and then they'll keep you there a week and move you somewhere. I mean, and I know guys that it happened to. So I didn't want any parts of that. So instead, I got into prison in New Jersey and started a Bible study. There you go. <laughs> and, it, and everything moved in a great direction from there. So as, as you get into the, the Jersey prison system, was it, was it similar to your time in Virginia where you started uh, immediately people were attracted to you because of your faith and, and, and because they knew you were a pastor um, or, or were there some trying times as well where individuals were kind of uh, feeling you out as, as a, as a fish or whatnot? There are. So the fortunate thing for me was I met a couple of guys on the bus. There were only four of us on this bus. All four of us had filed complaints. And so they just, that's how they handled it. 2.30 in the morning, they stick us on a 45-person bus and ship four of us up to New Jersey. Um, and these guys were seasoned. They'd all been in more than 15 or 16 years. So when we got to New Jersey, they were kind of coaching me a little bit on what to say, what not to say, and how to, how to keep yourself safe. But they also were there to let people know this guy's never been to prison before and he's a pastor. There's something about even guys that were that grew up in, in, in just really horrific lives 
that they had a mom or a grandma who just loved the Lord and they remember that. And so they won't be disrespectful to a pastor. And I, ha- I had some tough times and then somebody would intervene and say, he's a pastor and they would back right down. It was crazy wow. to see. Um, but the other thing that's really cool is that almost immediately the federal prison system is very segregated. Everybody lives together because they assign you a room. It's a dorm building. You know, there's 300 guys in it. Um, but they have a black TV room where the black guys watch TV. They have a New York one in the Jersey place. And that's mostly mafia guys or gangster guys or whatever, you know, and then they have the Hispanic room and they have a white guy's room. And then they have the sports room where everybody mixes. There's three or four TVs in there. Well, until I got there, I guess they never let white people come into the black TV room or the Hispanic TV room, but I did, I'd go sit in there. They let me in, they welcomed me and, and, um, and the guards would think that it was crazy. They were like, what are you doing? And same thing with when we finally got released to go to the cafeteria to eat. It's all black tables and then white tables and Hispanic tables. And, and uh, I could sit anywhere. Um, and it was really kind of cool. And I started, I started a five-night-a-week Bible study. Created too, too long of a story on how it got started. But I started this thing. And it grew from about 11 guys to up to uh, 25, 26 guys. And the guards were threatening me every day. Because something else that I didn't know was Christians are not allowed to be gathered together by inmates, only a maximum of four, whereas the Muslims, all 20, some of them could gather together five times a day. And we were mandated not to interrupt their times of prayer or we would go to the hole. Oh my God. But Christians can't do that. After several months of being just threatened and I just I never really felt like I was going to stop them. They called me down one day and the, one of the lieutenants said, keep doing what you're doing. He said, because you're having a positive impact here. And so the Bible studies grew. Uh, we did church services on Sunday mornings. Um, and it was amazing. It was amazing to see men who had never uh, known anything about Jesus. They would come to me privately and they'd want to know. There was one story in particular you'll read in there that I really want to make sure your readers hear. Because this is really a big part of the problem we have in America today. This young guy, he had been the head of the Bloods in Brooklyn. And had done some hor- horrible things and was going to spend a lot of time in prison. But he started asking me privately about Jesus. And we spent several hours together one day where he literally accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior and begged God on his face, crying for, for forgiveness for the horrible things that he had done in his life. And he said that he felt he said, I don't know what it is, but I feel like I've just got all this weight lifted off of me. And I said, it's the grace of God, the mercy of God saying, I forgive you. You're my son. And when he stood up, I, I hugged him and he stepped away from me crying. And he just said, you're the first man that has ever hugged me in my life. Wow. And man, that just broke my heart. But that is a story that you hear over and over and over in there. Guys who started carrying guns and running drugs at 13 and 14 years old out of necessity and never had a dad in their lives. Unbelievable. That is heartbreaking, but yet also we can see that you were there for a special purpose. Like I I think people forget Jesus's ministry didn't start with a crowd. It started with one woman at a well. So it's like we we forget the individual and how impactful we just don't know. We don't know the effects. We can only see, you know, like a pond, the first ripple. But we don't we don't see the arrest. So true. So true, Gabe. That's the truth, man. Um, 
And it was beautiful. It ended up being beautiful. I mean, guys would say to me, you're far too happy to be in here. And I'm like, it's, it's not that I'm happy to be in here. It's just that I wake up every day anticipating what God's going to do. It took me a while. I'll tell you, it was for my wife. Every day she would say to me, where did you see God's glory today? And it actually would make me angry. I'd be like, not here. Are you got to be kidding? And then it came a day where I finally just said, Lord, if you're, I want you to show me your glory. And man, he did because he knew I had finally surrendered. I had finally said, okay, I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm here as long as you want me to be. I got it. I got it. I want to see your glory. I saw guys differently. I just said, I want to see through your eyes. I want to see these guys the way you do. And all I saw was love. He just loved them. He, you know, he loved, they're still his sons. They've made mistakes, but there's, and some of them have done some horrible things. Some of them should probably stay in prison, but now there's many of them who will not ever get out of prison, but they will end up in heaven. Yes. They because will, of what yeah, God did. They'll attain that freedom that, uh, that has escaped them here on earth. Yeah. Uh, I, I love yeah. your story because uh, there's, there's prison ministries all over the United States. Uh, but you were in a unique position where they couldn't get away from you. You know, it was, it was almost a situation of, uh, I, I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me, you know, right. kind of a deal. Right. And, um, and yeah. then even, even as you've transitioned out, um, you know, as you meet people, you know, the ability to say, I've been in federal prison, you know, and, uh, and so I, I don't know hardly any prison or any pastors that can say that. Exactly. That are actually honest and legit. There's some pastors out there who've been to prison for for not so good reasons, but yeah, but but his message is going to resonate yeah. that much more with whoever he's talking to, yeah. uh, and I think that's why God put you in that situation. That for most people uh, would be a horrific experience, and and you turned it into something yeah. good. <clears throat> it's Genesis fifty twenty, man. The enemy had a plan, but we weren't about to let that happen, and he used it for good. I still keep in touch with some of these guys. They call me from the guys that are still locked up. Some of them have gotten out and have gotten great, have had great opportunities. But to to just get, tie in a little bit to that Joseph story, I get out of prison. I still I was able to maintain my real estate license, but the, a week after I get out of prison, I find out I have cancer. And so here's the crazy thing. They called me down and said, we're sending you home next week. And I said, you, you're kidding. Why? And she said, I don't know. They just decided to let you out. I had five more months to go. And um, so and then I get out and I literally go a week later and find out I had throat cancer and I had surgery within 10 days. And then it came back again a few months later and I had radical surgery and now I'm two and a half years you know, cancer free. Praise God. But. The beauty of it is, is that a year after I got out of prison, I get a phone call from the president of the Family Foundation. And this is Joseph's story because I couldn't have applied for this job. She says, hey, we've got this job, this new vice president level position to reach pastors and legislators. And we would we believe that you're the right guy for it. And I, I laughed. I said, do you have any idea what, what my background check is going to show? And she said, yeah. She goes, honestly, I think the fact that you were a uh, in prison is going to make the Democrats open the door for you a little better. <laughs> but, but, but I get this job um, where I, I spent, I've spent the last year and a half and literally I, I sit with our, our governor on a regular basis and we talk about the Lord. We talk about things that are, you know, that are facing the, the and we pray together. And with the Lieutenant governor, I'm, I'm literally wow. talk to her on an ongoing basis, regular basis. Um, 
I am in the General Assembly now. You know, we just start. We start tomorrow. Uh, so every single day, I will take a group of pastors in, and we will just pray with legislators. I was over there this afternoon, meeting with some of the senator, Senate leadership, and just praying with them about the kickoff because we're going to, you know, Virginia is facing some pretty tough things. We we lost the House and Senate, and they want to. They want to enshrine abortion with no restrictions whatsoever uh, up to the day of delivery into our Constitution. And, and and as a man of God, not as a political Republican or Democrat, but as a man of God and a decent human being, my mission is to see, to use the word of God to get that to not happen in our, in our state. Um, but this is like... You know, Joseph came out and ended up being second in command in, in the country. But look what he did. He saved an entire nation as they went through their their difficult times. I'm not at that level, but I am. I pinch myself because once a week I will sit privately with our lieutenant governor and we'll talk Jesus. And I couldn't have done that. No. God had to do this. You know, they. I couldn't have applied for this job. They would have laughed at me. But God did it in the way they did it was I said to her, why me? And she said, I don't know, because I just I asked our staff and our board who they thought would be a good person. And your name came up with four or five of the people and half of them have never even met you. They just know you on Facebook. <laughs> so wow. I was like, oh, OK, God, OK, look at you go, man. So you, and so it's been a an, you obviously you got into Pharaoh's house is where you're at right now. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're yeah. You, and I'm just saying this, you might find yourself getting a little knock on the door from heaven saying, hey, there's a seven-year famine coming, and I got you here for a reason. Yeah. And I also just, when, well. you, when, I, when you said that there's, there's a possibility of you being able to speak into the abortion issue, that's very heavy on my heart. From, from the time I was very young, um, when I was 13 years old, my dad was in Operation Rescue and would get Oh, wow. Get arrested. Um, he's in a wheelchair, so he would literally get out of his wheelchair, lock himself to some other Catholic priests, and they would shut down abortion clinics and just sing. And I would sit with my dad, and I'd sit right right next to him and sing with these wonderful nuns and priests and hundreds of other saints. And one time I got arrested for it. And I just, I, I literally, as you said that, I heard the Lord in my head say, you might be a deliverer. That that is his purpose. I, I, I you're you're going into a situation where your voice matters on this subject, and I and I want to tell yeah. you, it is not by chance for you to de- defend yeah. the defenseless, Michael. So I, I, right. I stand behind you right. in this and pray that God, to His fullest ability, Thank give you. you access to be able to actually touch the heart of an official. And get them to see the the absolute horrificness in a loving way that what abortion is, and and that it not only just kills a baby, but it forever changes the woman, forever. It does. She's broken. Yes. Yep. She is, and that's the mission. The mission is just to bring the truth. What I want people to recognize is as a leader, if you are, because a lot of people who vote in a way that would not that would contradict this. A lot of them love the Bible. They say they claim they love the Lord. 
Um, but this this need for this powerful position that they have to, to keep it has, has allowed them to now dishonor the Lord in some of the decisions they make. And my hope is that I'll be able to share how much God values life with them in a way that it'll just pierce their hearts. And they'll say, gosh, I just I have to draw the line here. I cannot do this. And um, that's what I'm asking him to empower me to do when I go before them. I don't. I don't go with a with an agenda. I carry my Bible and I just say, God, you tell me where to open it. And it's been crazy. It's it's I mean, it is I'm in awe of him because the things that he does when we surrender and say, God, I'm just your I'm you, I'm for here for you. I have no agenda. I don't want to I don't need to build a name for myself. I don't care if people even know my name. All I care about is that I have an opportunity to, as you said, protect those that can't protect themselves by sharing how much God loves all life. And I'll, get, I'll tell you a quick story. A, a woman one time just came and sat with me at a coffee shop that I had never met before. And she said, are you, she said, we're friends on Facebook. She said, are you going to tell me that if my 16 year old daughter gets raped, that she can't have an abortion? And I said, ma'am, I'm, I'm horrified that something like this happened to your daughter, but women are raped in this country every day. The one thing I do know is they don't all get pregnant. The ones that do get pregnant because God knit that child in your daughter's womb for a purpose. He knew that child before. He's got a plan and a purpose, not only for that child, but for your daughter. And I said, so four or five years from now, your daughter could be struggling and in all kinds of addiction as a result of not only a rape, which is horrific, but an abortion, which is also horrific. Or she could be watching her five-year-old daughter crawl up in your lap and feel so much joy that the pain of that rape is gone. Yeah, Michael, I've looked at the data on this, and it's incredible. Um, women who are raped that, that conceive a child, uh, they have proven without a shadow of a doubt that having that child actually contributes so greatly to the healing process. And that's exactly Absolutely. what you're talking about right there, is that they can Absolutely. find something good out of the experience, the trauma that they had. Yep. Yep. We just have to recognize God is sovereign. I love when I preach, I'll ask congregations, how many of you believe that God is absolutely sovereign and he's in every single part of your life? And they all raise their hands. And I'm like, okay, we'll see. Let's talk a little bit because I don't think we fully understand what that means. And so if, 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 if something, if a horrible thing happens, but something beautiful comes out of it, wow, that's God. That's who he is. That's the father that we love. Amen to that. Well, Michael, we've uh, we've run out of time again. I, I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed this interview. Uh, you, you, kindred spirit with you. Uh, I love Thank your you, mission. Man. I love what you're doing. Um, and we are definitely going to have to have you back uh, as we talk a little bit more uh, in the future about things that are happening uh, in Virginia and Washington yeah. State politically. There's a lot going on here, and I know that you have a real heart to get Christians involved civically. So we'll have you back and have, have a conversation about that as well. Well, thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure and an honor, and I appreciate you having me on. And uh, God bless you both. We'll we'll keep we'll keep plugging your show, and uh, I, I just want to see it grow. I think people need to know the truth. And what I love, Gabe, is that in the opening, you talk about how we're going to talk about some tough things, but we're going to put Jesus right in the middle of it. That was what attracted me when I heard that first intro of your show. I was like, okay, I got to talk to these guys. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you reaching yeah. out. And once again, for our audience, it was never about justice. You can find this anywhere that you purchase a book, uh, I highly recommend that you grab this book and read it uh, because it is such a compelling story. So uh, with that, Michael, thank you again for joining us in Church and State, and we'll let you go, sir. 
All right. God bless you guys. God bless you too, sir. The Church of State is sponsored in part by the Constitution Party and Patriot Church. I'm Gabe Blomgren. A calm does not suit me. I'm Caleb Collier. I was born for a storm. Welcome to the fire.